Good morning, Fairfax. So good to be with you guys this morning. I am Valerie Nolan, and I have a few announcements for you guys this morning. Um, all the announcements you can actually find by scanning the QR code that's on your seat, or if you're watching online, you can find that on your screen online. Um, one thing I wanted to tell you guys about is small groups, our small groups for the fall session is starting next week. So if you haven't gotten signed up yet, this is the week to do it, to get signed up. We've had hundreds of people joining in for this next fall season. So if you're not a part of that, definitely get in on that this week as well. Um, also, you should have received one of these cards, hopefully coming into the sanctuary today. And the information's also online for those watching online. But we are kicking off Make a Red Bag Month through our resource center. Um, and so if you don't know much about our resource center, we have three main pillars. The first pillar is that we resource social care providers um, with immediate needs and essentials for people that are in crisis in Fairfax County that they're helping. Our second main pillar is we deal with crisis management support. We talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago with refugee resettlement. And then our third pillar is to encourage and support these frontline workers so that they know that they're loved and cared for by the local church. Um, so of the first pillar, resourcing our social care providers, we do this through what we lovingly refer to as our red bags. So just take a look at the screen really quick. Each week, the Resource Center at Fairfax Church receives over a dozen requests from county caseworkers and others working with families in need. How do we answer? With our red bags. When we receive a request, our team fills up donation bags with groceries, hygiene products, items for babies, clothing, and other essentials. Once the bags are assembled, we notify the caseworker and they come by to pick up the bags. It's simple, but it makes a profound impact on the families they serve. At this time of year, our shelves begin to empty. We need your help to fill more red bags. This month, donate and help us serve people in need in Fairfax County. Yeah, so it is so cool. Yes. It's so cool, you guys, to see um, every week these county caseworkers, social workers, teachers, juvenile justice officers, police officers, just folks that are out there on the front lines that they're walking into this church, they're getting a cup of coffee at the Great Room coffee shop, and then they're getting these red bags put in their trunk to go take out to people in the community in need. It's just such a cool thing to be a part of. And um, we need your help to make these red bags. Um, fall's really the time of the year that we start seeing our shelves empty, school's in session, holidays are coming. It's just a busy time of year, and um, our stock is depleting. And so we made it really easy to help us make these red bags. Um, these are the six essential bags that um, caseworkers can actually request that we get together for them. Um, and you can scan the QR code for each of these bags or one of the bags, whatever you guys want to do. Um, and then it'll take you directly to our Walmart wish list. And the whole bag gets put into your shopping cart and can get delivered here or delivered to your house. And you can bring it in. Um, the items in here. Um, if you don't want to do the QR code thing, that's totally fine. You can actually flip this over, and these are the top five essential needs that go into our red bags that we're always, always, always in need of. So anytime you're at your favorite store, Walmart, Target, Costco, wherever, you can grab some of these items, put them in your shopping cart, and bring them here. We'll be out in the lobby for the next couple of weeks collecting some of these items, so we so appreciate you guys supporting us in this. Um, this is really just one of the ways that um, we see generosity happen in this community. And if you want to give as part of your worship today, you can do that online or in, in the boxes in the back. Um, we're just so grateful for just truly the generous spirit um, that is so um, a part of this community here. So thank you guys. Um, all right, we're ready to jump back into this amazing series in the book of Ruth that we're going through. So check out the screen. When life goes in a completely different direction than we had planned, God is always at work behind the scenes to redeem the situation. He's at work in every encounter, in every decision, in every detail. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world.
That's David. Will you give it up for David? <laughs> David is on our communication team, and um, a lot of the stuff that you see up front or on our website or whatever, David has been a part of putting together just such a creative crew. Our whole communication team is amazing. God has uh, gifted us with some just uh, super folks um, in that area and all of, our, all of our staff, actually, just amazing, amazing people. So I want to just give you a heads up. So last year, at the end of the year, we did a big push uh, for our Renovate initiative, and you guys were amazing. You gave generously, uh, hit our million-dollar goal, actually went over our million-dollar goal, and uh, to do some things uh, in our church just to kind of uh, 16 years old, just to kind of uh, bring some things up to up to speed, and uh, so the first part of that we did at the beginning of the year, and it's most of the stuff that you see up front here, the screens and technology and stuff that you don't see, uh, technology behind the scenes. Uh, we actually uh, came to find out that that technology has changed over the last 16 years, and. Uh, so we were uh, trying to kind of get caught up on some of that, and uh, we were able to do that. And then some stuff's been happening during the year that's kind of behind the scenes that uh, you haven't been able to see. But now in the fall, you're going to be able to see it more and notice it more. And I just want you to be aware of it because it's, it's going to affect our spaces. One is that we're going to be completely um, kind of painting everything in the sanctuary and we're doing it over a period of three weeks. The crew that we're working with is so great. They're working with us so that it doesn't disrupt any of our services. And so they're working uh, between uh, the services, between the, the weeks, uh, the weekdays. Uh, but when you come in, uh, in September here, you may notice uh, a fresh smell, a new smell, whatever it is, an annoying smell, I don't know, with paint uh, that is drying. And uh, so we just want you to be aware of that. And then in October and November, uh, we're kind of ripping out and redoing everything in the lobby and the coffee shop and the great room area and all of that. And so uh, it'll kind of be a pardon our mess kind of time during those couple of months. And so just be aware of that. Uh, when we get done with everything, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. But uh, as some of you have gone through construction stuff, you know that it can be a little bit of a pain in the, in the meantime. And so we just want you to be aware of that exciting stuff that's going on. Okay, um, so we are in week three, as, or week two, as Valerie mentioned, in our Behind the Scene series. And it's based on the Old Testament book of Ruth. And I mentioned last week that one of the interesting things about Ruth is that that God, the name of God, is actually not mentioned a lot in Ruth. But God, the evidence of God, is at work woven throughout the entire narrative. God is behind the scenes at work in every circumstance, in every struggle, in every situation, in every decision, in every, um, everything that's going on to accomplish something good, to accomplish his purpose in the world. And the main characters, there's three main characters in the book of Ruth. Uh, a young woman uh, from the country of Moab uh, who's named uh, Ruth, who marries an uh, Israelite man who has emigrated to Moab because of uh, a famine that's going on in the land. His family had to immigrate to Moab. Naomi, who's Ruth's mother in law, and Boaz, another Israelite man who ends up marrying. Ruth after her first husband dies. And the story begins, just a little context, as we, as we start into to chapter 2, a little context of kind of what's happened. It begins basically with a nationwide famine that takes place in Israel that forces Naomi and her husband and her two sons to leave the country, to immigrate to Moab. Uh, her sons grow up. They marry two women from Moab, um, Orpah. And Ruth, um, the name Ruth has made it through for thousands of years, and you still hear it. Orpah, uh, not so much. Uh, maybe Oprah was a misspelling and was Orpah, and then and just the P and R got changed. I don't know. Um, uh, but Naomi loves her two, her two daughters-in-law. Just a great relationship, and they love her, and 
everything is just, the family is great, everything's going great, uh, the move to a new country is going great, like everything is super at this point, things going really, really good. And then things begin to go south. First, Naomi's husband dies, which is unbelievably tragic and hard and incredibly painful, and some of you have experienced that, or you have a, a parent who's experienced that, or a friend who's experienced that, you, you know the pain that goes with that. But then after that, um, the even more unspeakable takes place, is that she loses not just one son, but she loses both of her sons, loses both of her, her only children. And so now um, her husband has died and both of her sons have died. And for Naomi, that would be a tragedy in any setting, any century, any circumstance, any time period. It doesn't matter. That would be an unbelievable tragedy. But it's a tragedy at a whole other level for Naomi because not only has she lost her husband and her two sons, she's now facing a future of absolute and extreme poverty. The land that she and Elimelech left, the ancestral land that was theirs and that they vacated when they moved to Moab, she can't go back and reclaim. Elimelech could have gone back and reclaimed, but she can't go back. As a widow, any attempt that she makes to reclaim the land is not going to be successful. And there's no IJM, there's no justice mission organizations, there's no justice organizations who can step in to protect the vulnerable, to protect the widow. So she is without really anything. And because she's older and doesn't have parents who are living, she can't go back and, and live at home with them. And she's too old to get remarried and have kids. So her future is not bright. And so for all practical purposes, we talked about this last week, her only option is to go back to Israel and to live this socially marginalized, economically marginalized Life And as bad as that sounds and as awful as that sounds, it's better actually than staying in Moab. You know, people go, well, why didn't she just stay in Moab? It's better than staying in Moab where she's an outsider in every way. She's an outsider culturally. She's an outsider ethnically. And, uh, ethnically. and so even, even though it's horrible going back to Israel, going back to Bethlehem where she's from, it's better than staying in Moab. Now, what, what might make Ruth's or Naomi's life a little easier at this point is if her two daughters-in-law would go back to Israel with her. But as we talked about last week, she knows how difficult that would be, that they would be viewed as outsiders and as young single women, they would be at risk for physical abuse and sexual abuse. And she doesn't want them to go through that. So she tells them to stay in Moab where they have a much better chance of finding a husband, of having a family, of having kids, plus they're surrounded by this extended family and a culture that they're familiar with. So reluctantly, Orpah stays, but as we talked about last week, Ruth refuses to abandon Naomi. And this is the verse. I didn't read all of this last week, so I want to read the whole passage. This is what Ruth says. Where you go, I will go. I will stay with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But then her language gets, and I didn't read this part, her language gets even stronger. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she does this almost curse on herself where she says, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. End of discussion. Like, no more conversation. Like, Naomi is not going to talk Ruth into not coming back with her. So it is about as definitive as you can get. So Naomi and Ruth head back to Bethlehem, where Naomi is from. And that brings us to chapter 2. Now, spoiler alert, we talked about this last week. We know how this story ends. Like, we talked about this. Eventually, Ruth marries a guy named Boaz. They have a son named Obed, the grandson of Naomi that she thought she would never have. Obed grows up, has a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up, has a son named David. David grows up and becomes king of Israel. And out of the lineage of David, a Messiah is born that would save the world. And that's why we're here today. So we know how that story ends. What's interesting about chapter 2 
is we get to see like how all that happens. The details of how all that takes place. And here's the deal. The reason that's so important is because God's, God's plan never just happens. Like God doesn't just snap his fingers and all of a sudden what he wants to happen happens. God is at work, often behind the scenes, through people, always through people, people like you, people like me. Like he's, he's at work, behind the scenes, through people to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. Now, you may look at that and go, that's a messed up system. Like, why isn't it a system where God just snaps his finger and stuff happens? Because he wants to work through us. He wants, as messy as that is, as undependable as that is at times, as, as faithless sometimes as we are, like, he wants to work through people. He wants to work through us. And that's what you see in chapter 2. Specifically in chapter 2, we see how God is at work through Ruth and Boaz. And here's how chapter 2 begins. Verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man, by the, by, uh, a man of standing, we'll talk about that later, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. And so she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And Ruth decides on her own, she decides that she's going to go out and pick the leftover grain. That's what the poor were allowed to do is to go and pick the leftovers that was left after the harvesters went through. Now, Naomi doesn't tell her which field to go to. Like she doesn't say, here's, like I got this guy, Boaz, he's, he's a relative and, and this might be something really, really good and so you should probably go to his field. No, she doesn't say anything. Ruth says, I'm going out to gather some grain and she goes out. She has no idea. The field that Ruth just happens to go to is a field that's owned by this guy named Boaz. Now, on several occasions in the book of Ruth, Boaz is referred to as the kinsman redeemer of Naomi. And he's called that because he was one of Naomi's relatives. And he's in a position as a relative, certain age, certain status, certain situation. He's in that position if he chooses to exercise the role, he doesn't have to exercise the role, but if he chooses to exercise the role to get Naomi out of her poverty by purchasing back on her behalf the ancestral land that was lost when her husband and her two sons died, and by marrying someone in the family, not Naomi, because Naomi can't have kids to work the fields, we're uh, marrying someone who can produce children, who can actually work the land and make it productive. I mean, that's the economic reality of the time. Makes no sense to have a piece of land if you don't have people who can work the land and one's offspring were the source of that, working that. So that's kind of the plan and that was kind of the role of what the kinsman redeemer was all about. Now, Ruth has no idea who Boaz is and no idea when she starts working in this field that this is his field. She just randomly picks this field out of a hundred fields that she could have chosen. She randomly picks this field to work in. And I love how, I love this story and I love how God works in this way in our lives over and over again. Like sometimes we make these little decisions, right? These little decisions that seem like no big deal. These, these minuscule decisions that we don't, they don't seem like a big deal. We don't pray about them. They're not something that falls into the category of like, I really need to fast about this and pray about this. They're just simple little decisions. And God somehow takes those little decisions that seem like no big deal and, and, and they end up having this 
cascading effect that changes the course of our lives. It literally changes the course of our life. And then what's so cool about it is when we look back and we kind of connect all the dots, that that all started with sitting next to this person on a bus or having dinner here or meeting here or having this thing that took place or this kind of random thing that I chose or going to this school or walking down this side of the sidewalk or being in this class or sitting in this seat in this class, whatever it is. Like we connect the dots and we look back is it just gives us this overwhelming sense of God's faithfulness in our lives. It's this powerful reminder that God is at work behind the scenes not manipulating the circumstances of our lives, but weaving together the circumstances of our lives to accomplish something good. And that's what God does with Ruth. She makes this seemingly innocuous decision, this seemingly random decision to work in this particular field rather than 100 other fields that she could have chosen to work in. And God weaves that decision in together in such a way that it not only changes the course of Ruth's life, it changes the course literally of history. In many ways, we're here right now, singing these songs, sitting in these seats, watching this experience online because Ruth went to that field and not that field. Think about, think about that God that is at work in all of that. Now, in verse 20, Boaz is described as a man of kindness. And we're going to hang with that word just for a moment. The Hebrew word that's used there is hesed. And hesed is this rich Hebraic word that can't really be fully described with like one English word. There's not like one English word that fully embodies the word hesed. And so actually when you see hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, in the Old Testament, there's a number of different words depending on the context that's used to describe. Here, it's described as kindness, but that doesn't fully describe hesed. Hesed is this, it, it's, it's hard to even in a phrase to fully describe, but basically hesed is this unexpected, undeserved act of abiding love and grace and kindness and faithfulness that is displayed in practical and tangible ways. And in Boaz, we see Hesed on full display. We pick up the story in verse 4. Look, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Just then. Just happened. He's in Bethlehem. He's in the city. And he comes back just when Ruth is there in the field. Just then, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem and he greets the harvester. I love this. He has a he has a, a, a call and response of worship to his, to his harvesters, like coming into the factory, coming into the office and doing a call and response. And, and he gives a call and response. The Lord be with you. And the Lord bless you, they called back. And Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, like, whose who's young woman is that? Like, and what family and, and, and who is she connected to? And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, she said to us, she asked, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she went into the field and she's worked steadily. She hasn't stopped from morning till now except for just a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz addresses, this is incredibly uncommon given the status of Boaz. We'll talk about that in a second. And and Ruth, who is in dire poverty, just even the acknowledgement. But Boaz says to Ruth, addresses Ruth and says, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Like, you're in the right place. Stay here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and you get a drink from our water jars, the water jars that the men have filled. So we're told in verse 20 that Boaz is, uh, oh, actually in, in verse 1, we're told that Boaz is uh, a person who's rich and powerful. The, the term that's used in, in verse 1 is actually that he is a man of standing. And that's a, a phrase, uh, a man of standing. 
is a phrase to talk about someone who has financial wealth and who has power, a, a person of influence in the community. But what's interesting is that Boaz does not use, he has privilege. He has privilege that he has in that culture, in that time, in that day. He's got privilege. But Boaz does not use his privilege to take advantage of others or to advance himself. In fact, just the opposite. He uses his privilege to show Hesed love to others. He harnesses his privilege for good and not for gain. Uh, it was countercultural then, 3,000 years ago. It is still countercultural to take wealth and power and for the primary use of it to not be for our own personal gain but for the good, the Hesed love, the love toward others, the love toward neighbor. Countercultural then, countercultural now. Uh, so here's what he does. First of all, he honors Ruth just by noting her presence. She, she's not invisible. Now, again, given the difference in the societal standing, uh, persons of Ruth's status are just not seen. And Boaz sees her. I see you, Ruth. I, I recognize you, Ruth. I know that you... I, so he just honors her by recognizing her presence. Sometimes that is one of the greatest honors, just to recognize the presence of someone. And then he takes a series of initiatives to make sure that she's cared for. He invites her to glean among the safety of his own workers... He invites her to drink water from his own water supply. He urges her to stay in the field for the entire duration of the harvest. You don't need to go to any other field. Like tomorrow when you come back, don't, don't go to another field. You just come back to this place. And he makes a point of addressing his male workers and telling them no one is to touch Ruth, to uh, hurt her in any way, abuse her in any way, take advantage of her in any way. And that's not all. Look at verses 14 and following. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, and again, amazing given the societal differences. Boaz says to her, come over here, and, and they have dinner together. They have lunch together. Uh, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And then she sat down with the harvesters, and he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all of it, all that she wanted, and she had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, in other words, in the middle of the harvest, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So during the midday break, Boaz invites Ruth to dine with him. And then he instructs his men not just to allow her to glean around the edges of the field, which was part of the, what they called the poor laws, the laws that they had for the poor to make sure they had something that was available. You could glean along the edges of the field, but not in the, not in the main part of the field where the harvest was bountiful and the harvest was rich. But he instructs his workers, no, 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 no. I don't want you just to allow her to kind of work around the edges. I want you to allow her in the heart of the field, in the middle of the harvest where the harvest is more plentiful. And then he even goes beyond that and instructs his men to leave bundles of their gleanings for her so that she can take it home. So Ruth takes home a ton of grain. Naomi must have been blown away. Like Ruth says, I'm going to go out and get some grain. And Naomi knows how that works. And she's going to come back with just a little bit. And she just comes back with all of this grain, just enough to feast for day after day after day. Boaz's kindness goes way beyond what was required by culture. And given the cultural backdrop, it is incredibly countercultural because the cultural backdrop is the period of the judges. And the period of the judges, sometimes we forget that this all happened in the period of the judges. And the period of the judges was a period of violence and pillage and rape. And, and it was a violent time where the poor and the vulnerable were, were taken advantage of and abused and all of that. And all of this kindness takes place. This isn't 21st century, you know, some nice area. This is, 
This is in the midst of a violent, violent, abusive culture. Now, Ruth is totally blown away by all this. She's blown away by, I mean, it's not lost on her how uncharacteristic all of this is and the hesed love that Boaz is showing her. And it's truly unexpected grace. She's, she's never met this guy before. She doesn't know this guy. And um, Naomi hasn't even talked to her personally yet about this guy. He's a complete stranger. She's poor. She's from another country. All of that comes from a different ethnic group. All of that. And so she asked Boaz, why? Like it's the most understandable question. Why are you doing this for me? And this is how he responds. Listen to this. He says, I've been told all about you. That's interesting. She doesn't know anything about him. The rich, famous guy, the landowner, the person of power. Like she doesn't know his biography. She doesn't know his resume. She doesn't know anything about, he doesn't, she doesn't know anything about him. He knows everything about her. Like she's famous to him. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother, how you left your homeland, how you came to live with a people that you did not know, that you had never met before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, Boaz is saying, he has shown Ruth hesed love, not because of anything that she's done for him. He's not paying her back in any way. He's not fulfilling an obligation that he made to her. He's not fulfilling a duty that he has to her. And he's not showing hesed love to Ruth because he's looking to get something from Ruth. Like he's not doing this because he's attracted to Ruth and he wants to get Ruth to like him back. Like we know this ends up in a love story and sometimes I think we read this part and we go, oh, I know what he's doing. Of course I know what he's doing. I fully understand what he's doing. No, no, no. He's not doing it so that she'll be attracted to him and like him and all that. And here's the, here's the difference. Here's the interesting thing. In our culture, and you, you guys will know exactly what I'm talking about here, there is a, a lot of hesed love that is shown, that people show when they're dating. A lot of hesed love that they show when they're dating because they want something. They, they want significance. They want someone to like them. They want standing because of the person they're dating. They want sex. They want a ring. They want security, whatever it is. So they, so they pour on, they pour on the hesed love. That's our culture. And then if those two people happen to get married, then four or five years into the marriage, they're wondering, where's all the Hesed love? Like, where did that go? And it's just like, it's so, it's so funny that, it's so funny that tra it's tragic and funny and sad and funny and the transition that sometimes happens. Like, and when I've done premarital counseling, just like, you know, you talk to a couple and you say, why do you want to get married? Like, what is, oh, They just love me so much. So thoughtful. Just do things for me without me asking. It's just like they just always have, seems like something that they are willing to do. So, so sacrificial. And then I'll turn to the other person and say, well, why, why are you wanting to marry this? Oh, it's the same thing. Is that just so loving and care for me and just like, just always, it's not me, me, me. It's like they're always thinking about the other person. They're thinking about me. They're putting my needs first. It's just like when we go out to dinner, they always go, honey, where do you want to go? Like, I don't care about, where I can eat anything. I can eat dirt. It doesn't matter. Like, I can eat dirt. I just want to go, where do you want to go? How, what, what do you consider fun? You like going to the opera? I like going to the opera. Oh, you like watching football? I like watching football. Oh, like whatever it is, like all that. And then sometimes, not always, depends on the marriage 
counselor, the person who went through. We have some really awesome premarital counselors that kind of shake all that out of folks, but you know, I probably wasn't one of those. And so sometimes you see those folks later in your office, maybe a few years later in your office, and they're sitting there and their arms are, are folded. And, and uh, now what I want to say, I don't, what I want to say is, where's the Hesed love now? Like, where's the Hesed love? Where's the like, oh, I just want to do what they want to do. Like, you know, it just changes because, and then we have to realize that what masqueraded as Hesed love <laughs> earlier, maybe, maybe wasn't Hesed love, which is way more sacrificial and, 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 and has nothing to do, nothing to do, nothing to do with getting anything in return. That Hesed love, that kindness, that grace, that extravagant generosity, it's that Hesed love that Boaz is showing to Ruth. Not because he wants anything in return. He's showing Hesed love to Ruth because he was inspired. Think about this. Because he was inspired by the Hesed love that Ruth showed to Naomi. And he wanted to show that same kind of love to Ruth. Boaz was kind because he saw Ruth being kind. Boaz was loving because he saw Ruth being loving. Boaz was extended grace because he saw Ruth extending grace. Boaz was extravagantly generous with his resources because he saw Ruth being extravagantly generous with her life. Like he was inspired. And that's what Hesed love does. It's contagious. Hesed love when we see it, we want to express that same kind of love. It inspires others to love, which 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 eventually becomes this cascading waterfall of love that can change the world. Now, the Hesed love that we see in Ruth and Boaz is, of course, just a pointer. It's a marker. It's pointing to something. It's a reminder of God's Hesed love for us. And 2,000 years ago, we see the fullest expression of Hesed love that the world has ever seen when God takes on flesh and enters into our world and our messiness and gives his life on the cross. It's the fullest expression of Hesed love that the world has ever known. Just as Boaz poured out his grain for others, God has poured out his life for us. And as we see God's Hesed love for us, it inspires us to show the same kind of Hesed love to others. So, how do we make sure that we stay focused on God's Hesed love? Because we know it. Like, if we've, even if we haven't connected all the dots, even if we haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, just for those of us who are here, for watching, engaging, all that, who have any kind of, any, any, any awareness at all of the Christian story and the gospel narrative, we know this cognitively, that God has shown this love, this amazing love by giving his life and dying for us on the cross, and that that and that if, if love inspires love, if it kindness inspires kindness, if generosity inspires generosity, if grace inspires grace, then the greatest act of love and grace and generosity that the world has ever known should inspire us in ways that the world has never seen. 
So how do we stay focused on a daily basis on that love? Because we know it cognitively, but sometimes on a daily basis, we just lose sight. So how do we stay focused on a daily basis? And I think one of the ways, probably lots of ways, but I think one of the ways is by being intentionally grateful. And there's lots of ways to do that. Some people keep a journal of everything that they are thankful for and grateful for and ways that God has answered prayer and ways that they see God at work in their lives and things that God has done. And they just journal and journal and journal and just have journals filled with all of these expressions of God's grace. Some people um, write notes and, and send notes, notes of gratitude, notes of thanks. They're just off. They're just awesome note writers and they're constantly writing notes to people expressing thankfulness and grace and of course their thankfulness is not just ultimately for that person but the God who inspires the act of gratitude that they are thankful for and they they write notes and by writing those notes and just expressing that gratitude and that thankfulness all the time it's just this reminder of God's love and God's grace and and people that are way more creative than me write songs of praise and songs of thanksgiving for and they give voice to their gratitude through the songs that they write of the things that God has done and the reminders of God's amazing relentless love for me it's just that gratitude I've found this wasn't always true but gratitude has become a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger part of my prayer life. I begin almost every prayer now by giving thanks for all of the ways in which I experience God's grace, God's hesed love, just in that day. Like it's just the daily discipline is just, just in that day. Expressions of gratitude for how I have experienced God's hesed love. And it's mostly little things, like a conversation that went better than I thought that it would go, a hard conversation. We've all been in those situations where you're going to have a conversation, you're not sure how it's going to go, and it goes better than you thought it was going to go, and, and just grateful, grateful for how God was at work in the midst of a conversation or an experience that I got to have that I wasn't sure, maybe an unexpected, a serendipitous kind of experience that I had that I wasn't expecting to have, or a person that I got to spend time with and got to have a conversation with and got to talk to or have lunch with or spend some time or just have a moment or a laugh or whatever, just a special time, or, or getting to go on a walk and just be out and, and be alone and to reflect and to think and all of that, just, just mostly little things, or a simple act of kindness, like I received from the AA guy, the AAA guy. Like one of our cars broke down this week on Route 29, and, uh, and so I was uh, there, and it was our Volkswagen Passat, and I probably shouldn't have said that. It was a, Volkswagens are awesome, by the way, I just want to say. They're the most dependable car ever that I've ever known, and, uh, but this one broke down, and uh, and so I'm waiting for the AAA guy. You know, that's the, that's the worst time. You know, you get, this, you get this thing from AAA and they tell you the time frame of when they're going to come. And it's just like, uh, we will definitely be there within 30 minutes to 12 hours. And uh, <laughs> so it's like, have a nice day, you know. And uh, so you're just sitting there. You don't know. Like, you don't know when they're going to. You don't know when they're going to come, and, and you feel like you're wasting your time, and you're not getting things done that you need to get done, and then some grumpy person's going to come and drag your car up on the thing and take it, and it's just not going to be good. And the AAA guy shows up, and he is joy personified. He is Mr. Cheerful. And it's just like, I have no idea if he was a follower of Jesus or not. He didn't use, like, religious jargon or anything, but he's just like, joy. And this is Putting your car onto my truck is the most joyous thing that I could possibly imagine doing. And, and, he, is just, and he, just, he just fills me with joy. And it's just like as I'm watching my car get towed onto his 
truck, I'm just filled with joy. It's just like amazing watching that happen. And he's laughing and talking and talking about things that are going on. And just like, it's just this amazing, amazing little unexpected expression of God's grace. And I'm, I'm following the truck, towing my car to the gas station, singing to the Lord. You know, like not the time when you think that's going to happen. Then I get to the gas station that we go to often and have worked on our cars and worked on this car. And uh, the guy who we know that's at the gas station, um, you know, the car won't start. It won't do anything. You can't move it. So they, you know, they, they dump it off in a spot and they're going to have to push it. And, and uh, the guy who runs the thing he says, I know, that, I know that you can't, you know, I know that you can't lock the doors and I don't want to leave it out all, all night with the doors unlocked. And so I'm personally going to push it into the garage tonight when we leave so that it's, it's safe and secure overnight because I know you can't lock the car. Just, just, just little, little acts of kindness. And then there's just being grateful for another day of life. <laughs> just another day of life. Another day to get to do what I love to do. To get to spend time and energy with people that I love, doing things that I love. Being a part of what God has called me. Just another day. Another day to do the things that I love to do. Another day, another day of healing, another day of grace, another day of forgiveness, another day of hope. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. In fact, some days almost my entire prayer is just filled up with expressions of gratitude to the Lord for his Hesed love just that day. And as I said earlier, you may have other disciplines for, show, disciplines for showing gratitude, whatever it is, but whatever it is, it just makes you, showing gratitude just makes you more and more aware of God's Hesed love, of God's relentless, faithful, beautiful, loving kindness. And here's the thing, the more gratitude you show, the more of God's Hesed love you see. It's like the more, it's this amazing thing that the more gratitude you show, the wider and wider and wider your eyes get to the expressions of God's grace and the expressions of God's Hesed love that is all around you. And before long, you realize that you are swimming in an ocean of Hesed love. You are drowning in an ocean of God's Hesed love. I love what Paul says about all of this in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say in response to this? He spent all this time talking about God's love, manifesting what Christ has done on the cross. Talking about God's Hesed love. He spends all this time talking about everything that God has done. And then he asks this question, what then shall we say in response to this? Here's what we'll say. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we know that God is for us. Not because our circumstances are easy or comfortable. Not because everything is going our way, 
Not because of everything is coming up roses and we are successful at everything that we do. Not because he always answers our prayers exactly the way that we want him to. Not because we always feel his intimate presence. Sometimes he feels a billion miles away. We know that God is for us because he has given us what is most dear to him. God has given us his son. He has given us Jesus. And Jesus, and in Jesus, Scripture says, in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. In Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. In Jesus, he has given us unexpected grace. In Jesus, we see God's hesed love for us, and it inspires us to show that same Hesed love for others. In Jesus, we see God's faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness in good times and in bad times. Faithfulness in times of loss and in times of gain. Faithfulness in times of plenty and times of want. Faithfulness in times of roaring success and faithfulness in times of roaring failure. Faithfulness in seasons of healing and faithfulness in seasons of sickness. Faithfulness in seasons of hope beyond hope and faithfulness in seasons of despair beyond despair. God is faithful. God is faithful. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is faithful. Do it with conviction. God is faithful. Do it together. God is. God is. God is. God, you are. You are. You are the faithful one. That everything is yes and amen in you. That you are faithful. Your hested love is faithful. In every circumstance, in every situation, in good times, in bad times, that you are the faithful one. Lord, may we stay focused on your faithfulness in big ways and in small ways so that your love will inspire us to love, so that your generosity will inspire our generosity, so that your kindness to us will inspire our kindness to others, so that your grace to us will inspire our grace to others. In the name of Christ, in the name of Christ, the yes and amen, in the name of Christ we pray. And everyone said, amen.